Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God has spoken through His Son. That's why you want to be careful when you say, God told me. That's why as a pastor you want to be careful. When you begin to say from the pulpit, God told me something that isn't in the Word of God. I don't want to put words in God's mouth. That's a frightening thing to me as a pastor. Everything we need to know about salvation and life has already been spoken to us by God through His Son, Jesus. If someone says they have a new word to share, be careful. As we're studying in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is supreme over everything and is everything we need. We brought you part one of our opening study in Hebrews yesterday. Here comes part two with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In this, he gives examples of the children of Israel being disobedient to God, getting the clear direction from God, and then, and then making a decision to be directly disobedient to God. It's not a passing disobedience that was repented from. It's a deliberate disobedience that they decided to live in. And they were punished for that. And then it says that you've got this disobedience going on for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of him who we must give an account. Now, you know that passage and I quote that passage a lot, but did you know it was in the middle of a warning? Where God was saying, don't you be disobedient like they were disobedient because God's word is alive and it gets right down in your thoughts and heart. You can't hide from God. God knows every bit of your disobedience. The fourth warning is a warning of a dullness of heart. A dullness of heart can be acquired when we just serve in God and we're not really that diligent about it and we're just going through the motions and doing what we do that we can become dull. This is a scary one. Hebrews 6, 1 through 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ. He's basically saying, we can talk about all these elementary principles and we need to move on to deeper things. He says, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and from faith towards God and the doctrine of baptism and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He's not saying learning those things are bad. He's saying there's deeper stuff than those things. And we, we need, at one point, you got to move on from those basic things. And then he says, for it is impossible. That's a strong word, impossible. For those who were once enlightened have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age that is to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again to themselves the Son of God. We're back to Jesus. All these warnings, you've come to Christ, you've come to the Son, you crucify again the Son of God, and you put him to open shame. Now, that's a heavy passage. And that's a passage that people like to do all kinds of fancy work to. They like to say, well, this guy was never really a Christian because he tasted of heavenly things, and he tasted of the good word of God, and he became a partaker of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't really receive the Holy Spirit, so they like to try to do that. But I've already dealt with that. It's like, okay, so if you've done this and you're a non-believer... It says it's impossible to renew you to repentance. When I was a youth pastor, this is back in the early 80s, 
a young girl came to me and she had her Bible open, tears in her eyes, and she was reading that passage. And she said, I've done this. I can't come back to Christ. And I said, do you want to? She said, yeah, I want to. And I said, then you haven't done that. She said, how do you know? It's because it says it's impossible to renew your repentance. If you're repenting now, then you haven't done it because it's impossible to renew to repentance. It doesn't say it's impossible to renew them to salvation. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. So the person who's done this is the person who says, I don't want to come back to God. He's the defiant person that you would say, come back to Christ. He would say, no, I don't want to come back to him. I want to follow him. Oh, maybe you've done this. You say, well, that's awful that it's impossible for him to renew their faith. Well, then they could repent and come back. But it's impossible to renew their repentance. This particular warning is a warning that people have ignored because they say it doesn't apply that I think is probably the scariest warning of all. It, 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 it's like, you know, a downhill grade of whatever, 8% that, that you would just ignore. It's like a dangerous, it's dangerous out there. And you, you got a warning from God and you go, ah, it doesn't apply because once I raise my hand, I'm saved. The fifth warning is a warning of despising. These people were beginning because of their persecution to despise the things of Christ and want to go back to what they grew up with and were familiar with in Judaism. This is in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. It says, for if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Notice again, the warning's talking about what's happening to Jesus, to Christ, to the Son of God, who tramples the Son of God underfoot. Counted his blood of the covenant, which was sacrificed as a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's a warning we should listen to. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And if we are playing games, if we're thinking that it's all right, you know, God's going to, I'm going to fall on the, the grace of God. I can go ahead and live in this, this disobedient, sinful lifestyle. It's a... Uh, it's a scary thing because by doing that, you're despising the very things that you say that you're serving. Finally, there, the sixth warning is a warning of defying, of having defiance against God, standing your ground and saying, I'm just not going to do that. I know God told me to do that, but I'm just not going to do it. Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 19. So that you do not refuse him who speaks. Did you just doubt defiance? I refuse him. He's speaking. And you're going, no, I'm not going to do that. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, Moses, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, the Son of God, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promising, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but the heavens. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken as the things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken may remain. He says, I'm going to shake everything that's made until everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And only things that can't be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, a salvation in Christ can't be taken from us. It can't be shaken. There's nothing on earth that can take it away from us. Let us have grace 
by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now tell me, reading all six of those back to back isn't scary. As I put this together today, as I put all of these together to read to you, I found myself going over them and over them and going, you know what? The more I read them, the more frightened I am. So the book of Hebrews is a warning to Jewish Christians who are wanting to go back into Judaism and not necessarily leave Christianity, but go back to the cover of Judaism where they can have protection from the persecution. And the writer of the Hebrews is telling them that them going back to those things is, a, is, is turning away from Christ and they are under this heavy judgment. All right, that was fun, wasn't it? That was fun, looking at all those warnings. We're gonna get into each one of those into detail, right, as we're in the book of Hebrews. And I think that's important. I think it's good. I think we want to. So now let's look at the first four verses. And it's pretty incredible because as I said in, in the introduction, it's all about Jesus. And it tells us it's all about him. In verse one, Hebrews chapter one, God, who at various times and in various ways in time past to the, excuse me, let me go, I can read it again. God, who in various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So in different circumstances, in different ways, God spoke through the prophets. Isaiah, the major prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, through the minor prophets, Amos and Micah and, and Joel, God spoke to the, the people. But in these last days, spoken to us by his son. The word last days there, by the way, is the Greek word eskos, which we get eschatology from, which is the study of the last days. So he's telling us that when Jesus has come and there's something that's an ending point of Jesus coming, these are the last days. What are the last days of? They're the last days which Jesus revealed all of the truth as to how you and I are going to be saved. And God has spoken through his son. That means he, he didn't reveal anything to Joseph Smith. That, that means he didn't reveal anything to the, um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the guy for the uh, Jehovah Witnesses who did the Watchtower. He didn't reveal anything to those who are writing the Watchtower now. He didn't reveal anything to any of these people that have added anything. Paul wrote this very same kind of thing when he said in Galatians chapter one, if anybody comes to you teaching you anything other than what you've already heard, let them be accursed. And even if an angel comes to you, interesting, he's gonna talk about angels here, but even if an angel comes to you or I myself come to you, then let us be accursed to the deepest part of hell. If anybody comes to you saying something different than what Jesus brought you, Jesus is the founder of everything that was said. Paul knew this. Paul had briefly gone to the disciples and then it caused such a problem, he, fl he fled to, to, to uh, Troas. And after a few years, maybe even a decade, Barnabas went and found him and brought him back. And they went out as a missionary, uh, as, as, as uh, um, two missionaries to do the work that God had called Paul to do. And that was the beginning of Paul's work. And Paul was preaching the gospel. And Paul wrote, if my gospel is different than the gospel of the disciples, I'm wrong. He knew that what Jesus had given them had to be what he was teaching. He had received it from Jesus as well, but that was supernaturally. And so he says, if what they receive from him bodily in person is different than what I'm teaching, then I'm wrong. And so he went back and met with them and had confirmed to him what he teaches. So people today say, well, Paul made up the gospel. No, Paul confirmed that he was teaching what the disciples taught as well. And then you have a council in chapter 15, 
where all of the disciples say, what you're teaching is good. Go and do this with the Gentiles. And he tells them what to go and do with the Gentiles. So we've received the truth by the Son. There's no adding to it. We might learn more about the universe. We might learn more about the Ancient of Days. We might learn more about the Holy Spirit, more about the Son, but we're not going to learn any more about being saved. Everything we need to know about life and godliness has already come to us through His Son. God has spoken through His Son. That's why you want to be careful when you say, God told me. It's why as a pastor you want to be careful. When you begin to say from the pulpit, God told me something that isn't in the Word of God. I don't want to put words in God's mouth. That's a frightening thing to me as a pastor. I want to say, I want to say things like, this might be the case. It's my opinion that this might be. Could it be that this is the case? But I never want to speak for God. And there are plenty of churches who do. Thus says the Lord, and they'll give some word. And I think it's scary because God spoke in, in these last days through his son. And prophets don't work the way they did in the Old Testament anymore. There were prophets in the New Testament, but it was a different sort of a prophet than what we found in the Old Testament. They were God was speaking through them back there um, then, but now speaks through his son. Then we are told seven things that are called by theologians the sevenfold description of the glorious son of God. And I love that theologians gave it that name because theologians are known for boring names for things. So they take these seven statements of Jesus in verses one through three, really two through four in Hebrews chapter one, and they give it this name, the sevenfold description of the glorious son of God. So we learn seven things about Jesus in the remainder of this text. So there in verse, the middle of verse two, it says, um, he has in these last days spoken of us by his son. And now we're going to get this description of the son. It says, first of all, uh, who he has appointed heir over all things. He is the firstborn son. He is the only begotten of the father. He is the one who receives it all. Understanding when you go back and study the heirs in, 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 in the Old Testament, Jesus receives everything. Everything belongs to him. But on top of that, Ephesians tells us that we are co-heirs with him. To the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he tells them right there in the middle of the chapter, you have everything. You have it all. We have it all. We think, I don't have anything. I don't have nothing. You got everything. You just got to hang in there. You just, you're going to realize that there's going to be a realizing that you have everything and that you are a co-heir together with him. But he has been appointed heir of all things. And we share in that. He's like our older brother who has received the inheritance and we receive it with him. And then it says, the second thing is that he's the creator whom through whom also he made the worlds. This son that God spoke through created the worlds. And every once in a while, I'll run into a Christian who's been a Christian for a while and I'll make a reference to Jesus being God, the creator, and they'll go, no, no, he's not God. He's the son of God. That's a confusion out there among Christians, not knowing that Jesus is God. And my response is always, no, 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 he's God. And then we got to spend, you know, time going through passages. I could go passage after passage, which I won't do tonight. But I will point out that he's the creator. The father, the, the spirit were involved, but Jesus was the part of the Godhead that created the worlds. We're not only told that here, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created, created by him, for him and through him and without him, nothing that was created has been created. There's nothing created without Jesus. 
In Colossians chapter 1, I think it's verses 15 through 20, you have the oldest creed in the, in the New Testament. It's worth memorizing. It starts off, God is, or Jesus is the express image of the living God. Jesus is exactly like the living God. He's the express image of the living God. There's a reason for that. He is the living God. So he made the world. There's other passages in the New Testament, by the way, that tell us that he is the creator. And not like, I think it's the Jehovah Witness who say that he was the first one created and then he created everything. When it says he was the firstborn, it's talking about the heir, not that he was created, like the first one created. He was the firstborn because he's the heir. They take that firstborn and say, see, he was first created by God and then God, then Jesus created everything. No, he's the creator of them all. He is the great I am, which he says in Revelation chapter one, right? I'm the first and the last, the alpha, the omega, the one who was alive and died and I'm alive forevermore, the great I am, the almighty God, almighty God, he says. Jesus in Revelation one refers to himself as almighty God, through whom also he made the worlds. So he is the creator. That's what I just did. So let's go on to the next one. So this would be the, uh, the fourth one. And upholding all things by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of our world. The Bible says in another place that in Christ, all things consist. He holds this world together. It is Jesus that holds the world together. I don't know what would happen if he let go. Some suggest that the world would just go up in a fiery furnace, a ball of fire, like Peter tells us that everything is going to end one day. Maybe that's just Jesus letting it go. But right now, the world you live in, the air that you breathe, the, the sun you feel on your face in the morning, the joy that you have, the pleasure that you have, is all because God holds everything together. All because Jesus holds everything together. And they're thinking of walking away from him. Some of them are leaving him to go back to Judaism. And he is the very one who holds everything together by the power of his word. Then it goes on to say that he is the redeemer when he had by himself purged our sin. That's interesting in the Greek. When he had by himself purged our sin means independently. We know the father had an involvement in atonement. The Holy Spirit had involvement in atonement. But Jesus, by himself, purged our sin. And they're going to walk away from that. And then he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And if, if anything, and that's, that's Christ the ruler, he's, he's got dominion, he's got power. He's the one who's in charge. And if anything, you would know that that's God because who's going to sit down at the right hand of the Father? Who's going to sit down on the right hand of majesty? No angel's going to do that. Michael, the archangel, isn't going to do it. Gabriel's not going to do it. Maybe the arch enemy, the dragon, the serpent of old would dare to do it, but he was cast down for trying to put his throne above God's throne. He was cast out. And so he sat down by the right hand of the majesty. And this brings pictures of Daniel chapter seven, the son of God coming on the clouds of glory to the ancient of days and being given dominion and power and glory forever and ever. The sixth thing is that he is Christ supreme. It says, having become so much better than the angels. Now, this and the next one tell us a couple of things. Having become so much better than the angels. And again, here's where the cults will grab a hold of it. And they go, see, Jesus became better than the angels. He wasn't before, but he came better than the angels. That's because in Philippians chapter two, 
it says that, that Jesus laid his glory aside. He didn't think it would be robbery to be equal with God. And he laid his glory aside and he became a little lower than the angels. And then once he rose from the dead and took his glory back again, he had become better than the angels. So he made himself lower than the angels and then he had become better than the angels. It wasn't that he wasn't better than them. He laid aside his glory and became lower than the angels. By the way, as we consider that, we're inferior to the angels. Angels are superior to us, but they serve us. It must drive the angels crazy that they serve us. They must be going, you seriously, I've got to help him? Couldn't you have made it so that we were the ones who spread the gospel and they helped us? But it's just like God. Think about throughout the whole Old Testament. God always chose the younger. Jacob was the younger, chose by God. God always chose the younger, the weaker. And God chose us as humans to be the ones to take the gospel and angels to be the one to help us. And that's going to be told to us, by the way, at the end of chapter one. That's here in this chapter that we read that. And so um, he became so much better than the angels. And finally, and he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. This is another one that the cults use. They say, see, he obtained a more excellent name. That is because before he took on the body that would be crucified for us, he was not called Jesus. We hear all kinds of names for Jesus in the Old Testament. We see the angel of the Lord that is, that is Christ, maybe Melchizedek. There's a question there as to whether or not Melchizedek was really Jesus. So we see those kind of things, but he didn't have the name Jesus. So the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. And they called him Jesus, the Bible tells us. And so then he died and he rose again. And the Bible says there is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved than the name Jesus, than his name. It is a superior name. And he obtained it. He obtained it by becoming a man and giving his life for us so that he obtained it. It has nothing to do with him somehow being created by God, as the cults would try to say. He has by inheritance of who he was. It's consistent in who he was. He's by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Talking about the angels now. Jesus has a more excellent name than they. And it's always better to call out on the name of Jesus because he's the one who can rescue you and help you. This first study, looking at the overview of the, the book of Hebrews, understanding who it's written to, looking at the warnings, and then looking at these glorious statements of the Son of God, I don't even know how to bring it to an end. I, I don't even know that I can say three things in wrapping this up. Maybe it's enough for us to say, we really want to approach this book seriously because of who we're talking about. This is the, just the, these seven statements of Jesus and these warnings that we saw and that they were people who were of Israel who had become Christians and then were walking away. And how serious it is if we drift away or we walk away. And these warnings are there for us as well. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have by your word to be able to see these incredible truths that were written to these people in the first century who had become Christians and were going back into Judaism. Lord, may we never put the law above you. May we never put anything that we find in the scriptures above you, knowing that you are the only way that we can really, truly, and genuinely be saved. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real 
He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life, or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.